0: You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn... But he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Now the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning to the tomb from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands Forever. So this morning, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to say Christ is risen. Hey, happy Easter Sunday, January 12th, uh, 2020 at First Christian Church. Uh, no, it's not Easter Sunday, but here we are in a resurrection text and here hopefully at First Christian Church in Mount Iowa, the whole narrative of the gospel is the center of all that we do, which includes the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so one of the benefits of working systematically through uh, gospel and, and just the Bible as a whole, working through books, is that you you come to text at different points in the church calendar. Normally this would be a very specific Easter Sunday passage where we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think that it was like when um, we were going through Luke, and actually I remember it very specifically because it was right after uh, Darla and I's whole ordeal, that I came back and I had to preach on the Magnificat, on Mary's song of praise after the birth narrative. And that was like in September or October. So before, before Halloween, we were going through the birth narratives. And so it was, it, the, doing that, I think, helps um, detraditionalize sort of those moments, like as though the resurrection is something we talk about on Easter. Well, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fundamental linchpin in the reality of the Christian life that Jesus Christ has rose from the dead. And so hopefully as we have to take time to focus this whole chapter. We'll do a few weeks in this last chapter in the Gospel of Luke that's all about the realities of of what it means that Christ has risen from the dead. So we are speaking about Easter Sunday in the middle of January. So we've entered now into this final chapter in the Gospel of Luke. All four Gospel writers... Right, uh, talk about this reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but none of them really gives the details of, of how that actually happened. Like we don't get the the physiology of of what it means. Like that, like no one was in the tomb while Jesus was resurrected. Instead, what we get is this narrative that at some point, uh, as the sun is dawning, Christ, uh, the tomb is the stone is rolled away, and, and Christ. Uh, becomes, resurrects, he he resurrects, he comes to life, so we don't get any mystical information on how the process actually worked, we just get the reality that it did happen, that Christ really died, Truly, uh, truly died. Professional executioners were there on the scene. They were not foolish back in those days. Like we try to think we're way more educated than they were then. We're much smarter. We have Google. And Google tells us how this actually happens. They didn't have Google. But no, they knew what death looked like. And they knew Christ was dead. They wrapped him in these linen cloths with spices. Joseph of Arimathea goes and lays him in a new tomb that had not been occupied. There were no other bodies in this tomb to be confused with Jesus' body. His body alone was laid up on this shelf. And then the Sabbath happens. We learn that right at the end of 23. Sabbath day occurs, that's Saturday. And so they go and um, they go and, and don't do any um, work for Jesus because it's against the law. They, they go and just take their Sabbath. But early Sunday morning, that's why we now worship on Sunday mornings. That's why we're here on a Sunday is because the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, I know it feels like Monday's the first day of the week, but if you look at your calendar, it starts with Sunday, all right? That's the first day of the week. After the Jewish Sabbath, the first day of the week is a Sunday. That is the day that Jesus ri- raises from the dead. Now, we could spend a, a ton of time Talking about all of the implications that, that are tied up in the reality of the resurrection. I, I pulled out a book that I have of a guy who wrote 50, 50 realities from the resurrection. It's called Risen. It's a, actually a very good book. I might get a few copies for Easter. But he's, he just brings out 50 Here's 50 realities that are communicated to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a a huge reality. And there are many important things to see there. We see there are truths that are more fully expounded to us in the epistles, right? The, the, uh, the writers of the rest of the New Testament bring, take up this argument of what it means that Christ has risen from the dead. And so we get sweeping sections from Paul talking about the reality of, of what it means that Christ rose from the dead. We, we know that Christ has victory over sin and death because though he did really bear those on the cross in our place... He has victory over them. He he became sin for us. The result of sin is death, yet Jesus lives. He beat death. It shows the it confirms for us God's um, approval of Christ's sacrifice in that God did raise Jesus from the dead. God accepted his sacrifice. We know that Jesus is a true prophet. Because he said he would raise from the dead, and then he did. There are, there are tons of, of implications from and theological truths to consider because of the resurrection. And we will get there, I think, as we get into really the centerpiece of Luke's resurrection narrative, which is this, uh, the walk to Emmaus that is next week. But this morning, as we're just here at the beginning of the gospel of, of ch- chapter 24 of this gospel of Luke... There are some details in this narrative that I think are unique to this section and, and very important for us that we don't tend to emphasize on Easter Sunday as much because we're trying to get the big picture idea out to those who happen to show up on Easter Sunday. Well, here we are in January, so it's just us good old standbys. And what, what, what's going on here in, in this resurrection narrative in Luke chapter 24? So there's three things that I want to emphasize this morning. And the first one is that Christ's physical body is his resurrected body. Luke labors the point that that this is not some, Jesus doesn't get a new body. Jesus doesn't just materialize or make a new body. Jesus doesn't somehow, uh, you know, Star Trek get beamed into, a, He's or he's not a holograph, some spiritual existence. That the body that was Jesus, that he was incarnate in, this flesh body that Jesus had becomes his resurrection body doesn't get a new one it doesn't become some spiritual body but but Luke labors this point something happens to this body of Jesus that was crucified that was that was scourged that had a crown of thorns put on its head that had a spear stuck into its side that had nails pierced into its its, its hands and feet that body doesn't just decompose and disappear and get traded in for a new model. That physical body gets resurrected. And we know Luke labors this point because of the details we have here. They go to this new tomb in which only Jesus' body has been laid, and it's empty. There's, there's no body there. If, if it didn't matter that Jesus Had a had the same physical body, they could have just well. There's the body of Jesus, and they walk out and they meet Jesus later. Like, wouldn't that have been that that would have been incredible on its own? I mean, you could you could you can imagine the narrative in such a way that that um, they they bury Jesus, he's in the tomb, and then they all go to the upper room, and all of a sudden Jesus is there among them, and they recognize him because he's Jesus. And they're like, how did this happen? Your bodies, we buried you, but now here you are. And you could see that in and of itself would have been a miraculous event, right? <laughs> that all of a sudden, this body that we buried now he's got a new one and here he is. But but he doesn't do that. There is continuity there is, there is continuity between this physical body of Jesus and his resurrected body. The body that Jesus walked around in while he was here on earth has gone missing. It's not left behind. In fact, Peter goes and he runs, right? And he stoops and he looks in. Now, these, these narratives, we know Peter and John was there as well. You can, you can harmonize all these Gospels. There's there an angel that speaks, but we know from the other narratives, there were two angels there. They looked like young boys. One of the Gospel writers says a young boy who is there. So we, we know we harmonize all of these realities. But they go, and what do they find? The linen cloths that they had ripped around, wrapped around Jesus, Those are still there, but the body is gone. Jesus' body, this physical body that was crucified, that was his, is gone. The women cannot find his body. Peter finds only the burial cloths, making it clear that this is not a a theft. This is not a discarding of this body of Jesus, but somehow the body that was in those wrappings is now out of those wrappings. Now, why do I labor this point? We don't normally, normally go on too long about this at Easter, but why is this important? Well, a couple of reasons. One reason is that Christians, we value the physical body. We, we are a unique faith in that we do make much of spiritual realities we believe that there is a spiritual realm we do not wrestle against flesh and blood blood but against powers and principalities and rulers of darkness we there is a real spiritual war going on but many faiths uh, many religions totally devalue the flesh and make everything spiritual and that the goal of life is to get rid of the flesh and become spiritual uh, the, one of the goals of, of Buddhism is that the flesh and, and worries and desire itself even is bad. And so the goal is to get rid of all desire, get rid of all flesh and enter into some sort of eternal state of spirituality. That, that the body is bad. And there were many uh, early religions that, that Christianity was fighting against that really devalued the flesh. said so the body was just something to get rid of. The body was just something to get through, to get to a heightened state of spiritual being. Christianity is different. It was one of the disgusting things about Christianity to many religious people back in the day was this idea that the resurrection was that your physical body got new life and that you actually corporally in your body live forever forever. And they thought, well, that, who would want to do that? It's get rid of the flesh and go into some sort of spiritual reality. But Christianity prizes, values the human body. We have flesh and bones. God in the beginning creates a real corporeal, fleshly, a real a real world. And he puts humans on it with bodies. And what does he say? He says, it is good. And so the Christian faith honors that reality, that our bodies are good things. They are not things we're trying to just get rid of to become spiritual, whatever, but our bodies are given great great dignity. We have flesh and bones. We interact with physical objects. God has called all of this good. We don't despair of our creatureliness. We don't long for some spiritual release, but for the redemption of our bodies, this gives us great appreciation for the real life that God has given us. You, the real you, has value. It's, it's one of the reasons why Christianity uh, really uh, works hard to value life, we say, from, from conception, from womb to the tomb. You've heard that phrase, right? Where we value the dignity and worth of every individual at every stage of development from the womb to the tomb. That, that our physical bodies matter. And one of the reasons we believe that is this reality, Christ, his physical body, there is, there is purpose and value and meaning as the Imago Day that we have bodies. We are not seeking to be liberated from these, but that these are actually our bodies are going to be resurrected. For those who are in Christ, that it's, a, it's a fascinating passage, 1 Corinthians 15, I think, that talks about the resurrection of our bodies, that they're going to be glorified. So it's, it's important because Christians value the body. But secondly, it also means that our future hope is that the life that is to come is as real, and I'd say more real even, than this life right now. You know, the Far Side comic is kind of the typical one everyone makes fun of. That we picture heaven that we're all going to be wearing white flowing robes and playing harps, and then somewhere is the kid on the side who's bored out of his mind because he never liked the boring old hymns. He never liked the hymn, You know, he never liked the, harp, the harps. And he's tortured in heaven because he's bored out of his mind. And we have this idea that heaven is some sort of spiritual thing we'll go to at some point. We'll all float around on clouds, and it'd just be one big choir service. For all of eternity. And you've heard that imagery. Maybe you have, have had that image in your mind that that's what heaven is. But what we see in the resurrection, Christ's real physical body is given, is glorified and given new life. That there is real corporality, there's real physicalness to who Christ is in his eternal state. And so, as Christians, our hope is not that, and, and, and our, our confronting of death is not that we're going to go into something that we have no idea what it's like. The day is coming when we're going to have this body that you know, this interaction that you enjoy with other people, this existence on a real planet is going to be experienced in an eternal glorified way in the future when Christ returns and reestablishes the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is tied up in Christ's body disappearing not not disappearing, but, but resurrecting. Not going into the ground and becoming some spiritual man, but becoming a, a truly resurrected man. Truly resurrected. If you if there is a continuity between this life and the life that is to come. And this is one of the realities of Christian hope. We hope for the next life because we know that we are going into something not that is totally unfamiliar but instead is very familiar and made better, free from sin, free from sorrow, free from aches and pains, free from all of the difficulty and strife of this world. That's one of the implications from Christ's body being resurrected, new real life. You will will read later on, they they eat with him. They touch the, Thomas touches the places in his hands and in his side. They are with Jesus in a very real way. Luke is laboring the realness of the gospel, the realness of Christianity, that it is not some abstract religion that we hold in our heads and we have high-minded ideals and principles that, that achieve us some sort of enlightened state, that it's real, that what Christ has done is real, that his death was real and that his resurrection is real and therefore our hope is not in some sort of platitudes but is in this reality that one day Christ will return, call us from our graves, give us resurrection bodies and we will be forever with the Lord in a new heavens and a new earth where we will, yes, see each other, play games together, Walk around together, shake hands, hugs, whatever, and know each other because the body that is coming is not, not one that's different. It, is, it has this continuity we see in Christ. So that's the first. Our Christ's physical body is his resurrected body. But another interesting detail of Luke's narrative are the details of the women being the first witnesses and the doubt of the disciples. The women are the first witnesses uh, and and the doubt that comes from the disciples, they point to this authenticity, the authenticity of the narrative. Luke is writing, you remember, uh, to Theophilus and he says, so you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's way back at Luke chapter 1. He wants him to have certainty. So Luke is determined to give a real account of what went on. And you see it shine through in moments like in this narrative. If you were going to invent a religion with this climactic moment, here here! it is, the Savior who has died for the sins of the world has now been resurrected, and you're going to make the resurrection the centerpiece, then you really want to pay attention to how you communicate that moment in history. You want to make sure that it is, you want to leave the listener with no doubts about it at all, to be absolutely certain. Make the narrative extremely compelling and overpowering to all who, was. everyone showed up and everyone knew, and the most credible witnesses were there. So, we see this first detail that it is a group of women who encounter the empty tomb first. Now, before you get mad at me that Darren's disparaging women, this is not, I, this is not Darren being sexist. This is what I've read from other commentators. The point of how a woman's testimony was not valued in the culture at this time. They, the commentators, they, they all talk about this reality. They, they've spent a great amount of time understanding the culture, and they would always point out that it would be a terrible idea to record women as the main or even just the first witnesses they believed that they were prone to emotionalism that they were not respected their testimony was not respected in this time they were not reliable and so when Luke records that women were the first ones to show up and witness Jesus there's authenticity authenticity that comes from that Luke isn't trying to fabricate a believable story he's telling what happened He's just telling what happened, that these ladies went to give, to prepare the body, to put spices upon the body. And what happens? It isn't there. Having them be the first witnesses and to share the first news of the empty tomb would weaken it if you were making it up. Luke is just telling the story. Again, the realness of this narrative. But secondly, the skepticism. You see this in the Gospels and you you think, why did they include that? At the end of Matthew 28, the ascension, he gives the great commission and he ascends and they all leave rejoicing and it says, and some doubted. I'm like, well, why would you say that? Don't, tell, don't, don't share that part. Say, everyone believed and it was amazing. They had wonderful, sir. It was just, it was incredible. Not a single person doubted. Why well, include this? I mean, don't, this, it's, a, it's not a selling point for confidence, right? Because they, they, verse 11, these words seem to them an idle tale. And they didn't believe him. Jesus has been raised from the dead and the first disciples to hear about it, they don't really even believe it. Why is Luke sharing this? Because he's telling the truth. He's, you see the authenticity of the narrative. He isn't working to craft a story to be persuasive dishonestly. He's saying, here's what happened. Here's what actually happened. One commentator says it like this. If Luke had been making this story up, a generation or more after the event, as people sometimes suggest. Not only would he have not had women going first to the tomb, women were not regarded as credible witnesses in the ancient world, as this story itself bears out, they didn't believe the women. Going on, he says, he would have had the apostles believe the story at once, ready to be models of faith and to lead the young church into God's future. No, it seemed to them a silly fantasy Exactly the sort of thing they will have thought you'd expect from a few crazy women with grief and lack of sleep. N.T. Wright said that. Email him, not me. That that's what he's, That's what's being communicated in this narrative. No, that, that it was there was all. It was a terrible way to reveal this 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 happening, which points to the authenticity of the narrative, the realness of what's going on here. The third detail. I want us to make clear, is that this was no surprise to the one who was resurrected, though it was to his people. It was no surprise to Jesus, but it was quite a surprise to them. If, you know, if you've know, ever seen the meme of Will, William Shatner, he's being Captain Kirk, and he does the, the face palm, everyone uses the face palm picture of just this, you just cringeworthy, something that's said that's so bad, you just put your hand in your face and, I can't believe that's even what's happening. I imagine this angel face palming when they, when they show up and they brought all this stuff to decorate, to, 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 fragr- to give fragrance to the body. They show up with these spices to anoint it and the men don't even bother going. And what does the angel say? You look down in your scripture, you look in verse uh, 6. Remember how he told you? Back in Galilee, I mean, you can just imagine the, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and then rise on the third day. You remember he said that? And then, what do they say? Oh yeah. He did say that, didn't he? I mean, there's this realization. They remembered that he actually did say that. Jesus isn't surprised. He's known all along. We can look back three instances in the Gospel of Luke where he tells about his death and then his coming resurrection three days later. Jesus is not surprised by this turn of events. It's part of his understanding all along. But even after communicating this to his disciples, they were still surprised by it. Now, what can we learn from this? Well, do you ever have a hard time understanding what God is up to? Do you ever wonder if God's promise to work for your good is even true at all? You look around and you see things going on and you're discouraged and you're, you're confused. You don't get it. Do you ever wonder if God's promise to work for your good is true? Do you ever have a hard time trusting that he is working for you when you assess the details of your life? Of course you do. We all do have various things we can look at. Why this? Why that? Why is this currently going this way? Why is, why is God allowing this to happen? What is, what is going on in all of these details? But I want you to hear this truth from this narrative. You don't have to understand all of God's ways to benefit from his works. You don't have to understand all of God's ways to benefit from his works. They didn't understand what God was doing. They missed it. They, they, hadn't, they, they weren't expecting it. They, they couldn't look around and say, oh, I know what Jesus is doing here. They couldn't see it, but they still benefited, benefited from it. Or you could say it, knowing what God is doing is not a prerequisite to benefiting from what he has done. Knowing what he's doing is not a prerequisite to benefiting from what he has done. Driving my son Joel around Des Moines is, is, a, is very fun because he's he's very good with directions. Like already he he can, he can fight. He knows where we're going. He knows how to get there. And and so if we're ever at a place maybe he doesn't know, but he knows where we're going. And I turn down a road. He's like dad, this isn't the way we get to. This isn't the way we get to wherever. I mean you know seven years old in first grade. But anyway, you know, this this is not how we get there. And he and typically he does he knows. But he but when we. I take a different direction, go some different back roads when I think of a quicker way to get there from where we are. When we get to the location, I don't say, guess what, buddy? You didn't know this, you thought this was the wrong way, so you stay in the van, we're all going to go enjoy the restaurant, we're going to go eat, and you thought it was the wrong way, you didn't know what I was doing, so you get no benefit from what now I've done by actually getting you to the right location. That'd be ridiculous, right? Though he had no idea what I was doing, has no, re- has no um, bearing upon his benefiting from what I actually did do in getting us to the right location. Do you understand the illustration there? We don't always, knowing what God is up to is no prerequisite to benefiting from what he has done. Christ in this work, this death upon the cross, this, this resurrection from the dead, the good that he is doing on behalf of his people, if you are his, You may look around and think, I did not know. I don't know where this thing is going. I don't know where that thing is going. I have no idea how God is going to wrap these things up for my ultimate good. I am lost at times with what God is doing. But if you are His, understanding all that He is doing is not a prerequisite for the reality that He is working for your good. I often feel this way with God's directions. I often misinterpret. I often feel like he's doing the exact wrong thing. And I'm sure those women on Sunday morning felt like God had made a misstep. I'm sure their hearts were broken and they couldn't see how God was working. But the great news is that their inability to see the good didn't keep them from receiving the good or from the joy of that good. We don't know. What God is up to most of the time, I don't know what He's doing with my life, my wife's life, with my kids, with this church, with Mount Air, with with any number of things. I don't know, but what I know, and you don't know for yourself. Ultimately, we don't know, but what we can know is that we can trust Him. Jesus is alive. He really went to the cross. He really died. He really resurrected from the dead. He has worked the ultimate good for sinners by bringing them eternal life. And we can be confident that he will not fail to bring us every good thing as well. We can trust this. Will we always be able to look and see and understand exactly what he is doing? No but we can be confident that he is working for the final salvation and consequently the fullest joy for those who are his. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see this. I pray for the hearts in this room this morning or listening this morning that are, like me, confused on so many fronts, wondering what you're doing how does this work out discouraged it may be the way certain things have gone confused disenchanted upset father i pray that the reality of the resurrection that you accomplish your purposes for the good of your people even when your people don't get it even when your people don't see it coming Father, that you would help us this morning as we come to communion, confessing our ignorance, confessing our sin, confessing our lack of faith even, laying it out at your feet, God, that you would fill us with your spirit that we might trust. You are the God who works for our good, works for the good of your people at every turn. Help us, God, to see it, to plant our lives upon it, and to live by the joy found in it.